Welcome to the Sales Prospectors Show. Supported by Lease a Sales Rep at Inc. 5000 Company, helping our clients grow sales by securing guaranteed appointments, qualified leads, and guaranteed contracts for their services and products across the U.S. I'm your host, Gil Pagan. You can also find us at leaseasalesrep.com. That's leaseasalesrep.com. And we're on all major social media channels, Instagram, LinkedIn, and the Facebook. Today, I'm uh, doing something a little bit different. I'm interviewing a gentleman by the name of David Sokosh. He is the uh, CEO and founder of Brooklyn Watches. And if some of you know me and kind of know a little bit about my background, uh, I'm a watch collector, an avid watch collector, mostly in the vintage area. Um, I do own a couple of contemporary pieces, and, and I'm actually hunting for watches on any given weekend. I'm at a flea market. I'm online. I'm in auctions. I'll fly out to a state and, and, and attend a live auction of high-end watches because that's just what I like. And I wanted to uh, interview David uh, because he's uh, – obviously, we have an operation in New York, and I'm originally from there. And I found out about uh, David uh, Brooklyn Watches business because I came across an article in the Wall Street Journal that kind of laid out um, his business and even didn't even know it existed. Uh, and that kind of piqued my curiosity because, obviously, uh, I like watches. So I wanted to chat with him a little bit about the business and what he's doing and uh, when he started it and uh, some of his passions. And, uh, and obviously, I'm going to interject some of uh, my, my uh, questioning in, into this conversation and interview uh, with uh, David today. So, David, welcome to the Sales Prospector Show. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It's great yeah, to be uh, here. Th th thanks for, uh, for, for uh, agreeing to the interview and for being part of this, uh, this show. So, um, tell me about, or tell us about uh, Brooklyn Watches and, you know, when you started the, the business and, uh, you know, where you are today uh, and what kind of, what led you to, to open up uh, the business and kind of out of New York and Brooklyn of all places. Sure. Um, I started the I started producing watches for sale at the end of 2009 and I had been uh, selling vintage clocks, antique clocks and at the Brooklyn flea. Yeah. One back up behind you. Oh <laughs> yeah. That's actually a sign. That, oh. <laughs> that's a that's a big display piece okay. um, for when I'm at a, a market that that that's sometimes a functioning clock today it's six o'clock all the time I don't all know right. <laughs> I, I gotta find out what's going on with that but uh, but that's that's a sign um, yeah. from, from my company okay but I was uh, selling clocks in at the flea market and it was in, in Brooklyn, it's called okay. the Brooklyn Flea. Okay. And that was a fairly new uh, market at that time. People may be aware of it, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how far reaching the knowledge of the Brooklyn Flea is, but it's a, it's a interesting uh, upscale kind of market, uh, artisanal food and right, right. crafts and, and antique things kind of all combined together. And so I was selling clocks and I could feel that people were really interested in things that said Brooklyn on them, things that were uh, smaller, easier to carry, because in 2009, 2010, there, uh, we were in the middle of this great recession, and the dollar was weak at that moment. So there were lots of people from Europe and Asia coming to New York, wanting mm -hmm. to buy things, 
And I was realizing that there was more interest in watches than there was in, in vintage clocks or antique clocks. And so I already had knowledge about working with, with clock mechanisms, but I studied with a watchmaker and started producing uh, wristwatches using vintage pocket watch movements for the mechanisms. So the mechanisms are made uh, in the late 60s and early 1970s. They're mechanical, manual wind, 17 joule movements. And I seek them out, usually one at a time, set as pocket watches, mm -hmm. and restore the movements, modify them a little bit, and set them in new wristwatch cases. So when you say, Dave, when you say you worked as an apprentice, just for people who don't understand what that means, uh, that you were basically an intern or uh, somebody was mentoring you uh, as you worked by them, maybe at a bench right next to them, kind of teaching you of how to fix a watch. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's pretty accurate. Okay, okay. Uh, so you worked with him and you started on these pocket watches, right, which is interesting. Right. That a lot of uh, uh, some of the, the wristwatch guys who started working on wristwatches actually started in pockets because they're bigger. They're right. Right? I think a lot of people will recognize that, right. uh, when I say uh, 6498, 6497, those are uh, really nice, larger size pocket watch movements that a lot of people start uh, work, when they're starting to learn about watches. Those are the movements that people start to learn on, and that's what was going on in this, in this class as well. Um, Where was the class? Say, say that again. Where, where was the class, David? Where oh, was you know, it was a, it was in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn. guy who was teaching it was a, a watchmaker himself, and he had a company uh, doing very high-end custom watches. Uh -huh. And uh, he was hoping to start teaching people how to build watches and then begin start a company um, in Brooklyn. And so he sent out a call. And the classes were actually in the Bed-Stuy YMCA. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and I think that most people um, don't realize when it comes to watches that the vast majority of watches that you see today, let's say just in uh, uh, a JCPenney or a Macy's or just big, you know, a big department store, that a lot of these watches are made in massive factories, right, that they're coming off of, uh, for the most part, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the broad market watches, the Seikos, yeah. the, um, um, the Longines, you know, some of these uh, massive market watches are made in factories using, you know, factory man manufacturing processes uh, right. versus a handmade kind of watch, which is what you're actually doing, right, with your Brooklyn watches for the most part? Uh, that, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I want to be sure that I'm accurate because I want to, I want to convey what I'm actually doing. Sure, if, sure. if you were to say that I'm making the watch from scratch, that wouldn't be accurate. Like hand making the movements like is the not what I'm doing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Cutting gear. gears, right. setting pivots, right. actually setting stones to make a watch out of a bunch of metal. That's not what I do. There are a couple of guys in the U.S. who are doing that. Their watches are gorgeous. Uh, they're in a slightly different price point <laughs> than what? Uh, Fifty thousand dollars, twenty-five. Uh, I'd say like twenty-five thousand, fifty thousand. Handmade like watches, right? Yeah, uh, and a watch that's actually made by a person or a group of people, starting with some metal and ending with a mechanism that's that's functioning and telling time. I 
right. hope someday to, to do work like that. I'd love to do work like that, but I don't have those skills at, at this point. But mm -hmm. what I can do is take a, a watch that's 40 or 50 years old and restore it, make it, make it go again. That, that I have the ability to do. And these, these movements that I'm using were all made by a company called Unitas in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. That name doesn't exist now. Swatch bought them. And I the believe Swatch, Swatch bought everything. Yes, right. they bought everything. This is in the late 1970s. They were really buying things then. And they bought another company called ETA, E-T-A. Mm -hmm. And somehow yes. combined those two. I can't quite tell if ETA bought Unitas and then Swatch bought ETA, or if, they, or if ETA bought both of those companies. But somehow, there are now movements made by ETA that have the same model numbers, 6498 and 6497, that these Unitas movements have. Mm -hmm. uh, the structure of them is the same. I believe the modern movements beat at a higher rate. The, wow. the, the balance wheel is spinning a little bit faster. So when you're, when you're making a watch, uh, one of your brand watches, Brooklyn watches, and you're putting together a, um, a Panerai lookalike. I was on your website. There's one that looks a little bit like a Panerai. I don't remember which one it was. Um, it's probably, it, did it have a white dial? I think so, or a black okay. dial. It could, it could be one or the other of those. The, it, the white one is called St. James. Um, the, I'm naming the watch models after streets or neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and St. James was a street where, where I was living when I started the company. Um, and the, the cases are certainly not by a famous manufacturer. Uh, they sometimes are an homage to them. They have a feeling of those cases. I love them, the, the, that cushion style with the wire lugs. I actually like them not so much because of a, an association with Panerai, but in the 1920s, there were watches that had cases like that, uh, like after, during and after World War I. There right. were a lot of sort of square-ish, large wristwatch designs that had wire lugs to hold the straps. And I really like those. So I, I use those sometimes. I wish I were making the cases myself. Uh, I have no expertise at smelting, forming, or milling steel, stainless uh -huh. steel. And um, I, would, I would really think it would be great to, to have a company manufacture cases that I've designed. Right. But usually their minimum orders are about 1,000 pieces. Mm. I have made 500 watches in 10 years. So ordering up 1,000 watch cases, uh, that would be <laughs> like a huge number uh, for, for my company because I'm, I'm really working at a... a, a Fairly small, like a, about one watch per week is what I what I build. I got you. So when you're building the watch, the Brooklyn watches, uh, obviously they all say Brooklyn on it, from what I remember. They say Brooklyn watches on the dial. On the, 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 on the dial. So right. you're you're buying, I guess, gears and and movements, ETA movements. I think is what you said, right? No, uh, Unitas. You're buying Unitas movements. Right. You're putting them. You're putting them. Uh, the movement already comes, already set. Or you're putting everything together, you're just getting the pieces. Oh, I'm usually buying a, a complete mechanism that's in a pocket watch case. So it's okay. something that was manufactured 
um, in, like I say, around 19, early 70s is when most of these came out. Um, they were, Unitas was making the movements and it seems to me that they sold them to various companies that wanted to uh, produce a watch mm -hmm. for their own, uh, either an in-house brand, like a department store or jewelry store. Sometimes I see names of, uh, of private label watches. So they right. would, they wanted a watch that said uh, Bailey Banks and Biddle, which I think is a Philadelphia department store or jewelry store. They wanted their own pocket watches. So they would go to Unitas and purchase watches. And I'm not sure if Unitas set them in cases with dials or not, because there's a lot of variety in the casing and in the dials, but the mechanisms are all the same. Um, and the mechanisms are marked with both. They would say Unitas and whoever the company was that, that purchased the movement. So I'm finding them that way, something where the gears and the plates have been together for 40 years. Uh, sometimes there's a problem and something needs to be replaced. But uh, essentially, I'm, I, I like to, to keep a mechanism together. It, right. it, it, it works better that way, because there are slight differences over the production time Right. Uh, there are slight differences in, in things, even till ETA is still making movements now. And some pieces that ETA supplies as replacement parts will fit these vintage movements. Others will not. Interesting. Very interesting. So when, um, when somebody orders a watch from you, I guess they go to the website, right? Brooklynwatches.com? Yes, brooklynwatches.com. So they go to brooklynwatches.com and they see a watch there and they click on it and I, I don't recall that they'd have to pay for it up front then you in turn begin to put that watch together is that what you're doing it depends okay. um in in a, a regular season um i try and have at least 12 watches on my website that are ready to buy okay. uh at any given moment and that has been true for a year or two look going backward but Right. <laughs> the article that that you saw in the Wall Street Journal also attracted other people. And at the moment, I've sold almost all the watches that are on my website. I think there are two that are shown that are actually available to buy. So I, uh, I am now taking, I'm, I'm putting people's names on a, on a wait list uh, is how I'm doing it now. There's no money up front. There's only money when the watch is ready. To go out. So if you were to go to the website today and saw a model that says available for, with a price next to it, you can email me and um, m make a purchase uh, over the web. Usually what I do is send out an invoice via PayPal. I find that's a really secure way to, sure. to have someone pay rather than them telling me their credit card number over the phone or sending me an email with credit card information in it. I'm not I'm not encrypted, so that's not the greatest solution. It's PayPal is taking care of that, so that that's the best, I I think. So I send an invoice, and uh, the customer pays it, and then I can ship the watch. Uh, I'm hoping to get back to that point sometime in the fall, like before the holiday season. I'm hoping to again have watches that are available to buy because people like that. I, I like that to be able to go see something you like and make a purchase. But right now I am, uh, I have enough watches on wait lists to that, you know, I think it'll be October 
before I can start building watches to refill my stock. Right. Okay. I got you. And we're talking in July, at the beginning of July. Right. July, August, September. I thought we got about three months. Right. It's a three month wait right now. Right. Yeah. For the most part. Okay. So the, the watches, the pricing is going from what to what for your watches? About uh, 950 to $2,000. Okay. Uh, that, that's the range that I've got right now. Um, mm. The quality of the mechanism doesn't vary mm. uh, in that price structure. It's uh, about the kind of dial that's on the watch, the face of the watch, the dial that has the numbers on it. If that's a newly made uh, piece by another person, then that's really easy for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those tend to be the lesser, the less expensive, the nine hundred thousand uh, dollar things. If I'm using a vintage dial, those are rarer. Uh, almost every watch mechanism I buy has a dial in front of it, mm -hmm. in front of it in a case. Most of them are not that great looking. Uh, right. They're either damaged or I don't really like the designs. Um, the seventies were a different time. Right. than today and and amazingly i rarely see gosh i've only seen a couple of designs that really are like the 1970s uh you know like a mod design or modern in style it's usually people looking back at about 1900 there was a big revival in the late 60s and early 70s of early 20th century things. So it's mostly people making up a, their idea of what an old fashioned watch dial looks like. A lot of times that's not so successful, but I can use those dials. I strip them and put my designs on, onto those metal plates. So, oh, okay. so uh, the, the watches that are on the less expensive end tend to have newly made dials. Um, the watches with vintage, uh, dials on them are a little more expensive, like uh, 1100, 1200, 1300. And that can kind of depend on rarity. There are a few that I've only seen once or twice. So they're harder to find or things that are really hard to fit that I don't find that many. Those, those tend to be a little more expensive. And then things that have dials that I've fabricated tend to be a little bit more uh, at the higher end. If, if you're talking about, uh, Sapphire crystal versus mineral glass. That'll also make something more expensive. Um, also, leather straps versus uh, reptile straps. Uh, that can change the price somewhat too. The only difference in the mechanism that makes a watch more expensive is sometimes they're skeletonized. Uh, so the, the movement has been cut so that you can see through it. And that can, that, even though the quality of the movement is the same, Right. It, that those movements cost more. Wow. Um, so can somebody get a, since you're doing, uh, I want to say you're doing a hand, you're putting together your watch by hand, right? You kind of right. parts together and everything and kind of, you know, kind of the movements in one shot and you put in the case and the dial there. And I, can somebody actually get a watch with their name across if they wanted that? You know, that, that's a good question. Um, and so far the answer has been no. But uh, somebody's asked it before. Oh yeah, a couple uh, of people have asked. I actually did a I did a, a very short run of ten pieces, uh, which is actually that's a lot of work for me. But for a company that that's right. a that's a small number. Uh, it was an addition of ten. We produced five, 
of that 10. And it was for a clothing company that was doing a promotion. And they, those five watches have a dial that says their name. Can I say the name of the oh, company? It's up to you, sure. Yeah, sure. It was Haspel. Haspel is a clothing company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I think. And they invented seersucker uh, okay. or, or invented the seersucker suit. Like they had all this seersucker that was being used for aprons and work clothes. And they kind of created menswear out of that early, right. early 20th century. And they wanted to do some, something celebrating their uh, anniversary. And so there are five watches out there that say Brooklyn watches and Haskell with their logo. Um, it, it could be possible for someone to do work like that. My, problem is not designing a dial that has someone's name on it the problem is fabricating it uh mm -hmm. because they're the way that those names and brands get onto watch dials is fairly complicated and it involves hand carving a, a plate called a cliche mm -hmm. that ha that receives ink and then the ink gets picked up on a rubber pad and placed on the dial that is not work that i'm doing at this moment. Um, there's a dial painter in New York City who does that work for me uh, because they do a fantastic job. And as you might imagine, the type is really tiny. Right. So, so if someone was wanting, was, I, I, can't, I hadn't thought about this, but it would at least double the price of the watch because right. you'd have to pay the fabrication costs for that plate, which wouldn't really have any further use after that one time. So. Uh, I think the answer is no, <laughs> but <laughs> I wish fine. the answer were yes. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess uh, it's all relative that if somebody wants watches like that made for a particular event and they're willing to pay for yeah. uh, the production and the manufacturing of that watch, then so be it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it, it, made, it made sense for a company to do that work uh, because they were producing a set of watches and they really wanted it. They wanted that to happen. But as a person for an ID, you know, to have their name on the dial, I'm probably not the right guy. Um, right. <laughs> I've, I, I am curious about other uh, methods of making dials, either hand engraving, right. um, which I don't know how to do, but I can conceive that I could learn how to do hand engraving. Mm -hmm. um, maybe something like that could have some type that's a uh, part of it. Uh, I don't know anything about 3D printing, but there's the concept of 3D printing watch dials. A lot of people have asked me, could I 3D print watch mechanisms? I don't believe that the technology is really there yet. I'm not a, an expert at all in computer technologies. I kind of go the other way, you know, right, right, right back toward mechanical things. But from what I have seen and from what I've heard from other people, it's not really there yet to make uh, a fine quality mechanical watch movements with 3D printing. Um, but I think you could do a dial mm -hmm. with ease. I don't know how to do it. I also teamed with uh, a guy and produced a, a small number, probably about 10 watches using a laser cutter to make the dial. I still had that brass dial right. and I coated it with lacquer and then a laser beam cut the, the numbers away from the lacquer, revealing the brass underneath. And that, those are really lovely. I, I liked them a lot. 
And something like that, because it's driven by a computer file, it could have a, um, you could do something uh, personal in that way. But there were other technical things that made it challenging, and I haven't gotten back to that yet. Uh, and that was, that was at least five years ago that I did that. So, so that's a really long answer to probably not. <laughs> that, no, that's fine. I appreciate that. Uh, reason why I'm asking is that uh, I came across a uh, a uh, watching clock uh, clock company for the most part that uh, does mantle clocks and wall clocks. I'm not sure if they have grandfather clocks, but uh, actually the the clock company is called Gilbert. Um, so oh. and, and obviously it's my first name. So I found uh, a, a, a wall a wall clock that hangs in my house. Okay. Well, it's, a, it's a pendulum clock. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, you know, as a uh, you have to you have to wind it with the with the with the key. Right. Uh, you're you're talking about something like a hundred years old. Oh yeah, so. it's nineteen oh five. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I know that company. They were in Connecticut. <laughs> yes. Yes. So Gilbert. Uh, I'm Gilbert trying to think. I know I've worked on clocks from Gilbert. I don't think I own a Gilbert clock right now, but yeah. Yeah, so that that's it's nineteen oh five, and it's uh, mm -hmm. and it's hanging in my you know I'm over my fireplace, and it's working, uh, and it yeah. keeps relatively good time. It gets a little bit uh, cranky every once in a while, but um, yeah. it needs to be oiled and, and kind of taken care of. But uh, usually once a year. But uh, mm -hmm. that's why I was asking about the uh, about the name of a watch, a wristwatch. I said, if you could, you actually put somebody's name on it. That's where yeah. I was going. I have not yeah. found a uh, Gilbert watch per se, uh, wristwatch. I've not seen one. Maybe a pocket is out there, maybe. Yeah, I would bet uh, you're, you're, you're testing my, my memory, <laughs> but I would bet that Gilbert never made wristwatches. They may have made pocket watches, but I don't remember that part. Yeah, um, me neither. Me neither. Uh, there were a couple of watch companies in Connecticut that made, uh, or clock companies in Connecticut that made pocket watches too. New Haven is one yeah. uh, that they're, they even, they made wristwatches like that. It depends how, when the companies went in and out of business as to right. kind of where they fall. And New Haven was producing things long enough that I, that they went into wristwatches, I think in the thirties, but I don't feel like I've ever seen a Gilbert wristwatch. And I don't know that they produce pocket watches either. Seth Thomas was sort of the Cadillac of clocks yeah, in, of course. in Connecticut. And they produced, they absolutely produced pocket watches. I don't know if they did wristwatches either. You'd think that they would have um, because they, they, that name is still around, but the, the original company went out long after wristwatches were popular. So I don't know, there might be. Yeah, yeah. They, um, so. The, the, that's good. I just I was I was just uh, just curious when you're um, when you're uh, I guess trying to educate yourself and kind of what's going on in the market. What are you reading? Are you reading any kind of magazines? Are you a part of an association? Are you, uh, anything to kind of feed your brain on? Uh, yeah. On, on. Um, in in I'm part of the or I'm a member of the Horological Society of New York, okay. which is a mid nineteenth century. Uh, group of watchmakers, a bunch of German watchmakers in the 1850s uh, right. formed this group that still exists now. And so they do meetings and lectures once a month and I can go and hear a, like a wide variety 
of different kinds of things. It's usually very specific on watches, but sometimes it, it's broader into other mechanical things. People who do astoundingly specific projects um, will come and lecture. And so I get a lot of uh, no, uh, knowledge about things that I know nothing about uh, from those lectures. I tend to kind of look at older uh, watches for ideas. Um, right. There's a company called Antiquorum. They're yeah. a Swiss uh, uh, auction house. Yeah, they I, have, I've got, I bought a, quite a number of pieces from Antiquorum in New York City. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, not not, that's not nothing to, buy, it's not to cheap. be able to buy something. There. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they produce beautiful catalogs. Yeah. And you can really go in and get these uh, inch thick color books full of pictures of watches and get ideas about what, what something looked like. Uh, if you're lucky enough, you can go into the showroom and see and pick up things that, uh, to, to see what they feel like. So I, I pay more attention to that than uh, watch magazines because I'm kind of, I feel like I'm always bucking some trend. I'm, I'm not quite sure which. Uh, at first, the, because the watches I'm building have pocket watch movements in them, they're bigger than, than a, a standard man's wristwatch. Uh, I don't even know now what a standard man's wristwatch is. I think at one point it was about 36 millimeters. Right. You know, something about as, maybe about as big as a quarter or so uh, was kind of like what a man's watch was. And the mechanisms that I'm using are 37 across. So the smallest case that I'm using is 41 millimeters across. And then I've, I kind of like 41 to 45. Those are kind of the right size for these movements. By the time you're talking about a 47 millimeter case, uh, there have to be spacers and things inside because the case is actually bigger than the mechanism is. When I started 10 years ago, those watches felt big to people. I remember right. a lot of people commenting saying, gosh, you know, these, I like them, but they're so big. And now I don't think that a 41 or a 45 millimeter watch seems that big. So to people, like I don't hear that anymore when I'm getting feedback that, oh, I wish that they were smaller. Uh, I, I don't feel rappers, like that's because the rappers years ago started a trend and the musicians started a trend of wearing these huge watches that were like a, yeah. a brick on their yeah. wrist. Uh, and, yeah. they, and they became to integrate itself into culture and they became to be seen regularly. So a big watch is not necessarily a, um, an anomaly anymore. And you're wearing one right, right now, right? You're wearing, what I, are you wearing? I am. I'm, this, is, this is actually my watch. Here, let me, let me see. I, I'm new at this whole technology. That's, that's right. Talking over a computer. You want to get closer. Uh, <laughs> let's see. What happens if I bring this in? I don't know. There you oh, go. Yeah. Good. There, there we you go. go. Okay. This is actually my watch. Um, 41, 42? It, it, this is 41 millimeters across. And it's a, it's a dial that uh, I've, only, I've only had three other dials in it this. It looks like an IWC a little bit. Kind of. Crown. I, I can't see the crown though too well. Oh, the crown is pretty simple. Yeah, yeah I see um, it. Oh, look. If I there tilt it like that, you can kind of see what's yep. going on. Um, but I find I build a lot of watches like this with a Breguet style font okay because they're, they're, these this style is vintage so i'm finding breguet style uh dials 
that are very much like this, but you know, uh, early 19th century kind of design. Right. Um, but this is a 1960s like a Helvetica, and I've only found a couple of them. Very nice. So, so uh, at the moment, I can't take orders for this. I have one, and I have one dial available. Unless I decide to sell the the watch that I'm wearing, I would, you know, take the mechanism and recase it in a right. in a new case. But that's the only one right now. I'm trying to find more. Uh, I guess it was, it was somebody who uh, it must have been a department store or something that because they've all had the same branding on them. Right. When I found them, that only produced a very few. And so, uh, so that's what I happen to have on today. Uh, and I guess that's a pretty good example of what the watches are like. They can get bigger. Uh, they don't get any smaller than this one. They kind of have a classic American look. They're fairly simple. Uh, right. You know, it's an uh, hour and minute hand, and usually a second hand at the six. Every once in a while, a second hand at the nine. Yeah. Uh, but no, no day dates, no, no moon phases, stuff like that. None, none of those complications. So none of your watches have a day date on it, have a date at all. Some of the, That's correct. It's just a dial. Yeah. No, okay. I'm wearing a real, I'm wearing a real simple watch actually today. It's a, um, let me see, hang on a second. This is actually a, a Waltham. Oh. Waltham 25 jewels, which you don't see very often. Yeah. 17, right? Or uh -huh. 10. Probably can't see yeah. it. No, a Waltham, uh, third, the third hand is red. Uh, but you don't see very often either. Um, yeah. And Waltham Mass, right? I don't right. Yeah. Waltham was a, that's a higher uh, grade company. Like I was talking about uh, yeah. New Haven. There, what was the water? Waterbury. Waterbury right. kind of somehow or other became Timex over right. time. Waterbury kind of shifted between one and the other. I'm not quite sure. But, yeah. But those are kind of what I would call dollar watches. That's not always accurate, but right. no, there was a you. moment when the pocket watches cost a dollar. Uh, yeah. But Waltham was a, uh, a much higher quality company at the beginning, and certainly that one as well. You know, like that looks like it's from the 60s or 70s. That's exactly right, 65. Yeah. Uh, 1965 and still running and, and still keeping good time. And, you know, what are we like now? It's like 40 40, 40, uh, well, 50 years. Yeah. Uh, 50 years old, give or take, and it's still running. And uh, and again, this is really a lower, it's a higher end Waltham, but it's lower end from a, from a cost perspective. You can get these vintage watches if they're running, you know, 75, 150 bucks, 80 bucks, 100 bucks. I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, they're, they're within most people's range where they can buy it. Um, sure. Almost like a, like a, a watch when you were going to a uh, department store and buy a $85 watch. I mean, it's, these right. vintage watches you can buy for about the same price have a lot more more history to it. Some of the things that I read is um, oh yeah, I have that. that. Yeah, okay, that's that's the uh, the complete guide to watches, price guide to watches comes out every year. Yeah, their prices sometimes I'm like I wonder if they're up to date, quite frankly. But yeah. um, <laughs> do you think that the prices are higher or lower in the marketplace than in the book? I I think that they tend to be higher in the marketplace okay. than what's in here. So um, I tend to probably add maybe 5% a little bit on top of a price of a watch. And then the way I kind of price it, um, if somebody obviously is watching and saying, How, what's my watch worth? Uh, or they're listening to the podcast. I go to, I, I look on eBay, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is obviously pulling in a lot of data. Um, 
some of some of my watch collecting purist friends don't like going to eBay because mm. they say it, it diminishes the value of the watch. They call it flea bay, um, you know, uh, because it, it drives down the pricing. But it, it's the it's the it's the the platform that's out there with the most data. And you go into eBay and you search by your watch. You click on sold, right? Uh, items, a com a completed sold. Right. Item, and yeah. You see that the watches went for what you have on your wrist went for about three hundred bucks. So take that, compare it to an up-to-date book like this one for the year, and it gives you a sense. And if you're off five percent, you kind of know what the market. Now, granted, somebody may buy the watch and pay you five hundred for it because that's what they want. Yeah. You know, they, they they've been looking for the watch, and it, it it'll throw everything out of whack. So mm. uh, I use that, and this is I look at old books too, like this one here. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a uh, it goes back years. Uh, uh -huh. The vintage American and European watch book five, but it's hmm. an old book. But again, it just gives me, you know, um, uh, to try to find the actual watch itself. Sometimes you can't find the vintage watch exactly like this Waltham I have. I can't right. find it. I get an old book like this. It's in here. Oh, okay. And I come up with a pricing mechanism based on how old it is. Right. And what maybe eBay sold something similar to, and I come mm -hmm. up with something. That's that's. Yeah. There's no man. Here's another one. Uh, another book that I have. Uh, huh. This yeah. one's pretty good. Um, it's Ooh, a, that has a swatch on the cover. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yep. Um, and uh, it's uh, wristwatches by uh, Isabella de Lisley Selby. Yeah. Hmm. See that there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So another book. So I just try to get some books just to get some pricing and ideas and, and to, what, what what is something worth? Um, you know, for the wristwatches. I mean, I'm in the you know I'm in the industry and Obviously, you're in the industry. Um, when it comes to, I guess, watch brands, I mean, I know you wear your own watch, right, obviously. That's true. I, I find it, 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 it's in my best interest to always have one of my watches on. Yeah, duh. Because um, I, I, I love watches, and I have, I have some other ones. Um, but I find that if I'm not wearing mine, someone invariably will ask me, oh, well, what do you have on? And if it isn't one of mine, then they're wondering why I'm not wearing my own watches. <laughs> so I tend to not wear other things anymore. Um, but when but, you were wearing them, what would yeah, you wear? <laughs> they were, in the world of watch collecting, they were stylish, but very kind of lower, lower end, like Elgin. I have a okay. beautiful Lord Elgin uh, tank watch from I think it's from 1939 because it's engraved it was a presentation watch to somebody and when I worked uh, as an apprentice clockmaker in uh -huh. you know when I was 20 years old um, that watch came in in uh, scrap like it, wow. it came in in a in a lot of things that somebody was selling and I received it as a gift from the from the owner of the store so so I, that's the watch that I always think of uh, you know I I've owned it since I was 20 years old and it's the watch I would put on today if I were not gonna wear one of my own um, but I've had other other things a couple of Tiffany watches um, again kind of older not not as high-end I I have never uh, been able to to move in the Patek uh, right. Rolex uh, sure. world, um, yeah. which which is not really fair to say 
uh, I guess I'm talking about new watches made by those companies because there are beautiful things by, by Rolex uh, and Patek and other people that you see for sale and they're uh, not more expensive than the watches that I sell. Like you can buy a Rolex for less than $1,000 uh, from the 50s in a small size, you know, not a big Submariner that is what somebody wants, or nor Omega, it, those, those really stylish, popular yeah. designs. But if you're looking for more of a dressy watch from before Rolex was so sporty, like sport oriented, those watches are beautiful and affordable, I think. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, um, the watches that are kind of migrating into the, into what uh, people tend to associate with high-end watches are the Rolexes for the most part that have a very distinctive look. People look right. at you know, that's a Rolex or it could be a Tudor, T-U-R, which is very similar to the Rolex. Um, and some of the Invictas, even also Invicta watches also, depending on which one you get, look similar to a Rolex until you come up on it and realize it's not. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the, the brand name that people associated with high-end luxury watches is the Rolex, which uh, a lot of sales reps, right, who have kind of made it uh, uh -huh. and, and made a, got a big check at one point, bought themselves a Rolex, uh, and the Datejust uh, watches is kind of like where the entry level point is for the Rolex, and there, you can get a, a 1960-70 watch at about a thousand, twelve hundred, thirteen. If you can get a good deal for nine, if you're really lucky, uh, you can buy one. But you're you're in that range, almost where you are with your watches, right? Uh, but you know, nine hundred, a thousand, twelve, thirteen. You can get a used Rolex Datejust, nothing fancy, but nice mm -hmm. and Rolex. Uh, yeah. And a lot of the, the sales reps that, you know, run around and doing sales in the field of wearing Rolexes, it's a sign of status. Um, Paddocks mm -hmm. as well. Um, uh, uh, what, Audemars Piguet, uh, they're mm -hmm. using those AP watches. Um, and that's an example of, again, status. Um, I still have a, 19, I have a 1953 Rolex uh, Datejust um, mint condition that I bought with my first check as a sales rep that mm. I got it was a big bonus check uh -huh. at, at auction. Uh, and it was mm. mint condition. I still have it. It's a sentimental piece, which I won't sell, right? Because yeah. it, I bought it when I got my first uh, big uh, check as a sales rep before I started mm. uh, my company. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it has a, a, a lot of value there. Um, there is an association between um, watches and people who collect watches and other, uh, other things that people do for hobbies. Like this yep. connection between watches and cars, watches mm -hmm. and fine dining, watches yeah. and cigars, right? Yep. Um, so uh, that we were talking before about uh, watches, you know, offline about watches and cars, right? Yeah. Um, so and yep. it, there's a there's a there's a bleed over right there. There is, and I think that uh, it seems to be in the air right now. Uh, I was reading about a, an event that's happening in the fall in Detroit. Uh, apparently, Henry Ford saw the Waltham watch factory, I guess in the 1890s or very early 1900s. And because he, it, in the story that I heard, he's already interested in cars, but he's building cars by hand. And he sees this factory making watches with interchangeable parts, which is something that was going on in Connecticut with watches or clocks for a long time. I mean, interchangeable right. parts in Connecticut clocks is like 1830, I think. Eli Terry. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so, so it wasn't brand that, that 
idea wasn't brand new in timekeeping, but it was a big new idea for car manufacturing. And so, so there's a big symposium in Detroit to talk about the link between uh, watches and clocks and automobiles. And it goes beyond this inspirational uh, story of Henry Ford to today where people who collect cars may also collect watches. I mean, I see them as related to each other, you know, mechanical things, right. uh, more unusual things, something that not everybody has, um, classic designs, designs from other periods. So there's all kinds of, of stuff. Uh, I know that, well, it's interesting because the cars that are really popular now are like muscle cars, you know, things from the 60s, things from the 70s. And I think watches from that period are popular too. And furniture is popular. Interior design is popular from that period right now as well. Um, I have a, a antique car. It's a little older. It's not really a muscle car, right. uh, but it's a Ford uh, from 1940. So it's a... Which you, know, you still big, drive. Yeah, I drive it. Um, and since, since we first spoke, the, the, the linkage in the throttle lever that snapped. So, and I use the throttle a lot. Um, in case uh, people uh, listening in, um, modern cars don't really have a throttle anymore, but these older cars have a lever on the dashboard that you can pull and it acts like the gas pedal. So you can actually rev the engine with a lever on, on the dashboard as well as with a pedal on the floor. And I use that uh, because my car, uh, it doesn't like to go from second or third gear to a stop going down a hill. Right. <laughs> so if you're coming to a stop sign and going downhill, you need to just step on the gas a little bit or it'll stall. It's something with the carburetor. And so if you're already stepping on the clutch and the brake, it's really handy to reach over and pull this knob. And pull the throttle, to, right. <laughs> to just, to just uh, rev the engine. I just have to do it one time and then it, it's great. And as I, then I can shift into first gear and go forward again. Uh, so that snapped. But I can still drive the car. <laughs> and I was on the uh, I was on the phone talking to somebody this morning, getting this little link. It's like this little rubber piece that that hooks the the two levers together to make this thing go. But um, I really love the car. Um, I'm learning more about it. When I was a kid, my father repaired uh, the cars that that he drove and that my mom drove. Right. So. There, it's almost old enough. Like, you know, those cars were made in the 60s uh, that I remember him working on. Uh, but I was a little kid at the time, so I unfortunately didn't learn everything about fixing cars. But these, they're ultimately repairable. So, it's, again, similar to kind of a classic watch. Uh, you may not be able to repair it yourself, but someone can repair it. It isn't, it isn't ruined when it stops working. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. That uh, again, those who like uh, cars, the mechanical piece, obviously old cars and 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 watches. There's that mechanical kind of operation, and then there's an association there. Although many 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 may not make the association, there is yeah. an association. Yeah. yeah, there's also a um, uh, some of the people who like the fine cars. Uh, uh, many are perfectionists. Now, getting to mm. the psychology of it. Okay, some mm -hmm. of them are very detail oriented. Um, uh, you know, perfectionist, and, and they like, like the, the, the watch to run right, uh, be clean looking, they like the, the car running flawlessly, being clean, 
Um, yeah. Certain psychology uh, and personality around the people who like mechanical vintage kind of watches versus the regular Joe who buys a you know Rolex because it looks good and they put on his wrist and it's nice and he but but he may not necessarily he, he or she may not necessarily be that kind of person. But mm -hmm. someone who likes the old vintage stuff tends to have a certain psychology associated yeah. with it, and that's probably. You know, are you? I'm assuming you're probably along that line to some extent. Maybe, possibly not all the way. Uh, you know, I know, I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, but uh, yeah, right with, here. Okay. With yeah. with watches, more so. I'm I'm more of a perfectionist. You know, like especially when I'm sending something out, it's not quite right. Oh my gosh, I don't. It can't go out yet. Uh, right. You know, really wanting something to run as as well as it possibly can before it goes out to a, to a client. Uh, that's very important to me. But it, it's interesting, this is, this is the first time, I've owned this car for about three years, and it's the first time that I've had a car like this. Um, and it's kind of helpful to me uh, to be able to drive it, like to be able to get in it and drive it and park it and walk away from it on uh -huh. the street. Uh, not in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm talking about upstate. Uh, I, I, I moved back and forth between Brooklyn, New York, and uh, a town in Columbia County, right. which is about two hours north of New York City. Uh, and so owning a classic or an antique car in Manhattan is a very different experience than, uh, than owning one somewhere else. And so it, it's about garaging and parking and driving and uh, it's. I think a certain kind of person probably thinks it's fun to drive in New York City. I actually don't mind driving in New York City, but uh, it's not a place to, well, it's sort of the same thing that I'm saying. It's not a place to drive calmly when you're worried what's going to happen to the outside of your car. Uh, you know, if somebody bangs it or bumps it or you nick something somewhere, that's going to happen in the city. So up here, Right. In the more in the country, it's a more relaxed kind of thing. But um, the car that I've got is in original condition. It hasn't ever been restored, and the paint's in pretty good shape. But it's it's almost eighty year old paint and eighty year old upholstery and stuff like that. And that's a different kind of a feeling. Like I'm really worried about making a change that will make it less original. Okay. But it but it's kind of it's a little more comfortable that. I, I don't have to worry about it every moment um, as far as it being perfect because it, it, it's far from perfect. Although that seems to be a trend now too in these old cars to find something that was never touched. It looks like it just came out of 50 years in a barn somewhere. People are not restoring cars the way they did in the 80s uh, where everything was taken apart and absolutely scrubbed and replated and repainted and reupholstered and looks like it was when it was brand new. Um, that seems to not be as popular. Uh, in, off the frame, off the frame restoration. Yeah. I mean, I think people really want stuff to run well. You don't really want to be driving around going, oh gosh, I hope it starts again. <laughs> when I get out, when I come out of the restaurant, I hope it starts. But Push uh, it downhill and check the choke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, it's, it seems to be uh, oh, a movement away from that heavily, heavily restored to more original appearing 
Um, I think that's true with watches too. I know that some people want a, you know, a 50 year old Rolex to look perfect, polished, right. refinished dial, uh, the glow, you know, the radiation, or not radium, but, uh, idiom, the, radium? the, 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 well, the glow in the dark, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah, component. they want all that to be fresh and new and perfect, but, uh, some people want, don't want a watch that's touched like that. They really want it to show its age and look like, uh, it's, it's 50 years old. So it depends. I think it depends on who the person is, like who the collector is. I was, I was in the, in the case of the car, I was lucky to find a car that I could afford that was really in great shape that way. So I didn't feel like it needed to be restored. It needed some mechanical things done to it, but it didn't, it didn't need uh, a frame off restoration to be able to drive it around. Ah, okay. Uh, well, we're going to uh, rapid fire questions now. Okay. Um, uh, where, and it, this is more personal stuff. Has nothing okay. to do with, and there's, there's, there's no rhyme or reason. Um, the, so, a uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Hot or cold? Hot or cold tea? Yeah, hot both. or cold tea. Both. both. More okay. hot, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, hot dogs, uh, ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. Okay. Burgers, ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. <laughs> okay. Bagels, toasted or not toasted? Toasted. Okay. Uh, dirty water dog on the street, would you buy one? No. Okay. Uh, no. Shish kebab, shish kebab on a, on a, 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 at a cart in Manhattan, would you buy one? No. Okay. It's called uh, flesh, on, flesh on a stick. No? Yeah. I think the only thing I've ever really bought on the street in New York is pretzels. Okay, because <laughs> they're safe. Because <laughs> they're safe. Yeah, I'm afraid. My mother was a nurse, and so there was no thought ever. And she she, she went to she she lived in New York for quite a while. Not when I was around, but right, right. Af, after after World War II, she lived in in New York City for about ten years. So there was no chance of <laughs> of buying food from a cart on the street. Uh, at all, and I think I've kind of continued with that. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm giving a very long okay. answer okay. to your rapid fire. <laughs> okay. uh, movies, uh, fiction, nonfiction, drama, sci-fi, horror. Yes, I think all? all those. Probably more fiction than nonfiction. I like documentaries, okay, but most of the movies I watch are are stories. I got stories. Okay, vacation spot. If you can go anywhere right now, where would you be? Wow. Uh, well, where I'd really like to go that I've never been is Egypt, although it's, uh, it's been in the upper 90s here for about a week. So I, I can't imagine going today to Egypt, but maybe in the fall or winter. So you prefer hot or cold weather? <sighs> I'm going to say cold right now. I, I prefer fall, uh, okay. but, uh, but it's, I, I'd say fall. But, but it's been really rough up, up here. Uh, probably not for you. Uh, no. Like not 95 or 97 might not sound so hot to you. It, but. No, it is hot down here, too. Yeah. Uh, for those who are listening, I'm in the Carolinas today, uh, North Carolina to be specific. And, uh, and you're, in, uh, are you in Brooklyn today or you're in uh, you're upstate New no, York? No, I'm upstate today. Upstate New York. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, well, that wraps it up. I, I uh, okay. want to thank you for... Uh, sharing some of your time with us today and sh sharing about Brooklyn watches. For those sure. watching on on video on YouTube or going to be listening to the podcast in the show notes, there'll be a link to the to brooklynwatches.com. 
Uh, and I'll have uh, David's name there as well. If for some reason you want to reach out and, and, uh, and potentially put an order in, there is a three-month wait, potentially maybe longer. Maybe longer. <laughs> or, or a watch that he would put together uh, for you, a uh, handmade yep. in the sense of putting it together <laughs> yep. uh, for you. And um, I, I love talking about watches. And uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us today. Sure. Thank you. You're welcome. Catch up soon, buddy. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.